Hello, and welcome to Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm Rania Kalik, uh, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with my other co-host, Kevin Gistola. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rania. Um, today, Kevin and I are joined again by Darj Mal, who we've had on the show um, a bunch of times. He is a staff reporter for Truthout, um, who we've typically had on the show to talk about um, his expertise on Iraq, but uh, Dar has been... Um, reporting mostly, most recently, about, um, well, the end of the earth. <laughs> uh, so thank you for joining us, Dar. Uh, we're really excited to have you on again. Well, thanks. Good to be with you guys. Um, and so, yeah, you, Kevin and I have been following your reporting on climate change, and it's terrifying. Like, I don't know where to begin. I mean, just like, it's like, especially the last couple months, I mean, everything is like, you know, the scientists warning about extinction coming, and you know, 26% of mammals face extinction and, um, and a lot of other really awful things. And I, it's just like one thing after another. So I, I guess like, why don't you start us off? Cause I, I don't think a lot of people really follow climate change, unfortunately follow climate change issues that closely, except for when there's like a big hurricane or some like big natural disaster that happens. So I guess, why don't you start by f- filling us in, about the more general aspects of what's happening right now. Yeah, and I, I agree. It's it's really challenging for me to write about this stuff. That's why one of my recent pieces entailed talking, uh, basically pulling together a bunch of quotes from climate scientists because everyone who's following this closely, whether it's scientists who are producing the actual studies or people like me reporting on it and other journalists reporting on it, or, or people who read it and make it a priority to read it on a regular basis, like depression is a very real thing that we have to deal with. And so I've been writing about that because what is happening, and, and, and I have to kind of come to terms with this every month when I come out with my climate dispatch, which is a basically global survey. I look around the world and try to pull together the most recent scientific studies that have come out showing how far along we are. Uh, linking various species extinctions or extreme climate events or other factors like the drought in California, linking those to climate disruption and things. And so, you know, but but just some broad brushstrokes to give people a general idea of how far along we are. I mean, it's it's common knowledge now in, in uh, the brunt of the scientific community that we are have entered the sixth great mass extinction on the planet, uh, and this is due primarily to climate disruption, you know, human-caused climate disruption, as well as uh, deforestation and, and you know, by, by basically corporate capitalism and mass consumption causing habitat loss for so many species uh, and, and habitat destruction and pollution, et cetera. And so because of that, you know, in, in my most recent climate dispatch, um, I cited how experts are uh, already warning us to expect between 30 and 50 percent of all current species to go extinct by 2050. So that's literally upwards of almost half of all current species extinct. And, you know, we're talking 35 years. Um, you know, another recent report that came out in the last month listed several key species uh, that we, we expect to see go extinct this year like the Sumatran elephant, the Javan rhinoceros, the mountain gorilla, the leatherback sea turtle, et cetera. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, that's on the back of another really stunning new study that was published in the uh, journal Science, one of the most prestigious journals out there, 
uh, also talking about how we're causing a major extinction event, and those are their words, in the oceans. Uh, and one of the scientists of that study said, quote, I honestly feel there's not much hope for normal ecosystems in the ocean uh, without a dramatic shift away from current business as usual fossil fuel economy. So those types of things, um, I've, I've written a lot about the, the methane releases that are already happening in the Arctic, methane being 100 times more potent greenhouse gas than is CO2 over a 20-year time scale. And the problem with the methane releases in the Arctic is this is a runaway feedback loop that basically can't be stopped. So uh, several things like that happening across the plant that are really kicking things into to overdrive uh, into an already pretty dismal situation. So, I mean, I could kind of go on at length, but I don't know if you guys want to get into some specifics. But, yeah, it's really, it's really, really grim news. Now, is the scientific term or is this something that you came up with? It's, it's anthropogenic climate disruption or is that your term or a scientific term? I actually stole it from my wife. <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's, she's an artist who, and a lot of her work is informed by uh, climate disruption, and she's also as a pretty heavy science bent herself. And so she came up with it. I have seen it used in, in some, some scientific literature. Um, but I think it's just, you know, I, I, I tend to go with it by preference because a lot of the climate deniers and the Republicans, you'll see them uh, saying, well, climate change happens all the time. And, you know, <laughs> this isn't this isn't so. It, and, and it's true. It's factually correct. Climate climate changes every second of every day and always has and always will. Um, so if we if we want to just kind of cut that nonsense out and just use a very, very specific term, you know, anthropogenic, i.e. human caused uh, climate disruption, because it's not climate change, it's climate. We, you know, our actions are literally disrupting the planet. So if, that's why I use that, because it's very, very specific and it can't be argued. So along those lines, could you get into, because I think it was really uh, flooring and just incredible to read this whole thing that we've, you know, and I think you were alluding to it, if not specifically mentioning it, that we've uh, gone beyond four of the nine quote-unquote planetary boundaries, end quote, and, uh, and that you know, this is really, I guess, horrible for humanity that, that, that some of these have been crossed. And I, can you talk about that fact? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's just another wake-up call to show that on really so many levels, we have, have literally gone beyond what this planet is, 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 um, you know, at the, at the risk of anthropomorphizing the entire planet, but really what the planet is, is, is able to withstand. I mean, for example, and one thing I haven't written about yet, although it is, you know, I've got a, a article coming out on, on overpopulation. I mean, you know, it's, it's been argued that the planet basically has a viable carrying capacity, i.e. how many people can live on the planet without causing major disruption uh, or damage or, or overconsumption is, is probably just under a billion people. And considering that we're pushing 7.3 billion now is, is, is one boundary. Uh, I haven't really written about that again, but that's, that would just be by, by way of one example. Um, other things of, you know, it's very, very clear. Right now, you look around the planet, there is not enough clean water for everybody on the planet to have safe, clean, potable drinking water on a daily basis. There's not enough food. Uh, you know, some of that's displaced. We have, you know, the 1%, of course, hoarding and having more than enough of everything. And yet, 
you know, what is it, over a billion people a day, and that's a very, very conservative estimate. I, I've seen some other estimates as high as 2 billion, almost a third of the total population of the planet doesn't get enough to eat on a daily basis. Um, we look at survivability in certain temperature ranges in certain parts of the globe. You know, the Middle East, for example, their temperature changes and, and um, other areas around the globe like that where they're starting to become unlivable. So um, I'm not sure that addresses directly and specifically the question you asked, but that, at least to give people some idea that we really have pushed through so many of the kind of livable boundaries on the planet let alone, you know, what the planet can even take as far as, you know, what is what is a, an amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that that uh, is, is, is not going to impact uh, life on Earth? What's the level of methane that's not going to impact life on Earth? And clearly those are two more boundaries that we've passed through and kind of left in the dust. So one thing that I found um, really scary, I guess, is... I mean, it's it is it's really overwhelming to see things like you mentioned how um, two hundred fifty thousand people, additional people will will be are projected to die every year. Um, between what were the what were the years you mentioned? Um, I just had it in front of me. Uh, between like uh, twenty thirty to twenty fifty or something. Right um, from from climate disruption. Um, and then, you, you know, you go like, it's just like one thing after another water, like there's not enough available water, <laughs> um, and like drinkable water and it goes on and on. And then you mentioned all these like mass extinctions taking or like mass extinction taking place. Um, but it, the, I think the scariest part of it all is it's like, there doesn't seem to be any momentum building to do anything to like mitigate what's happening. Um, cause I think that it seems like we're past the point of actually stopping this stuff from happening. There are, I mean, and, and I do want to point out because there, there is a lot going on and, and I do plan on writing an article about this in the, in the not too distant future that there is a lot of pushback happening. There is, there is a lot happening regarding, uh, people and in some instances, even some governments that are taking some pretty extraordinary steps. I mean, for example, the, the divestment movement, um, not just the divestment, you know, the BDS regarding Palestine but uh, in Israel, but, but there's the climate change divestment movement where there is a big movement trying to pressure governments and, and institutions and universities to take all of their savings and divest it out of, of fossil fuel-based uh, holdings. And so that's gaining momentum where we have major, major universities around the planet now that are doing that major companies, and in some instances, governments are starting to do that, and that's picking up steam. Um, uh, there, there's, for example, the country of Denmark is getting almost half of its entire electrical power just from wind, uh, and then we have other European countries that are setting pretty dramatic goals in the very near term of, we want, we're going to get off this percentage, you know, we will, we will, uh, get off like 20 to 30 percent of the fossil fuels that we're currently on within like five, 10 years. I mean, very, very aggressive goals. So there is some of that happening. Uh, we don't, you're not going to hear about that in the corporate press, you know, the CNN where, you know, every other commercials, you know, is sponsored by Chevron or Exxon or this kind of thing. But, but that kind of thing is happening there. You know, one of the things I wrote about recently was how the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists recently moved their doomsday clock to three minutes to midnight the closest it's been since the height of the Cold War, due because of how far along we are regarding climate disruption, but also the threat of nuclear war with what's happening in the Ukraine uh, with, with NATO, the U.S., and, and Russia. 
So, so uh, that coupled with other uh, uh, large bodies of client scientists that are literally begging their respective governments to, uh, again, stop, stop pushing for more drilling, stop, stop, uh, st stop pushing for ongoing use of fossil fuels. So, so there is a lot of that pushback that is happening that unfortunately doesn't get nearly uh, as much press as the business as usual. And could you talk about, I think it's rather fascinating, and, and I think most people probably have never contemplated this as fueling climate change. You write, uh, I think you've done a couple posts or, or pieces on uh, methane blowholes. Can you, can you go into that? Yeah, that's right. I, I've uh, written quite a few, actually, on on what is happening uh, up up in the Arctic regarding methane. It's actually starting to happen down in some parts of the Antarctic, too. But I did an article on that, that that came out last month, uh, the middle of January, uh, called The Methane Monster Roars, and I interviewed several of the leading scientists who are studying what's happening there. And, and uh, one of them who probably put out the most shocking uh, information in quotes, his name's Paul Beckwith. He's a, he's a professor of climatology and meteorology at the University of Ottawa, Canada, who's also an engineer and physicist. And he talks a lot about abrupt climate change, which he, he says we're already in. I mean, most people think about climate change as being this linear progression. Okay, we passed 350, then we're going to pass 400, and it's going to take X amount of time before we get to 450, and this kind of thing. And that's also how the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change views it and most of the governments on the planet. But in reality, um, he, he, he's looked at paleoclimatology records from the deep past and showed there is uh, historical evidence, and I've seen a lot of these reports myself published in things like science and proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences that show the Earth has undergone severe, abrupt climate shifts, where literally we've seen temperature shifts of 5 to 6 degrees C in 12 years. Uh, it has, has, has actually happened, and that's what Beckwith thinks we are at the beginning of an, an abrupt climate shift, where he said uh, this would, quote, lead to a temperature rise of 5 to 6 degrees C within a decade or two. And obviously, that kind of a abrupt and shift would have just dramatic and unprecedented effects on literally every living being on the planet. And 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 he cites, of course, what we're talking about the the, the release of methane that's been frozen in the permafrost and and in the shallow seas of the Arctic, uh, and that that you know as those ocean waters are are warming so fast, and and that permafrost is melting as well as the the, the hydrates that are frozen just in the shallow seas of the Arctic on the shelf, uh, particularly in the eastern Siberian shelf, th those are all melting and releasing uh, pretty dramatic amounts of, of methane as, already into the atmosphere. And and just by way of, of uh, you know, we're talking about uh, an amount of carbon that it far eclipses what we've already put into the atmosphere so far. So this is a very worrisome thing. It's already happening. I, I've spoken with uh, um, other, other scientists who are up there leading it, like a Russian scientist named Dr. Leonid Yurganov who's a senior research scientist at University of Maryland uh, with their physics department. And, and he, along with Natalia Shikova, University of Alaska Fairbanks, who's another leading methane researcher, and they're all saying the same thing. He said, look, this is, it's happening. Um, the, we haven't seen a massive abrupt release yet, but there's enough small consistent releases, and that number is growing that they're all quite concerned uh, that, you know, this, this is the type of thing that could kick in 
one of these kind of abrupt shifts that Paul Beckwith has, has warned us about. Dart, could you um, talk a little bit about the? You've mentioned um, some of the the sicknesses, like the, like humans are are getting sick because of um, climate change or climate disruption. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that? That's right. It's a, an interesting that's hap- thing that's happening in a lot of uh, uh, hospitals. Even even the Obama administration has issued some kind of marching orders with uh, the health departments across the United States where uh, to get ready for new diseases and trends and things that are going to come from from climate disruption. And and so, for example, it, we're seeing malaria turn up in, in parts of the world that we just hadn't seen it uh, happen before. We're seeing other types of diseases spreading because, you know, warmer temperatures in certain regions that aren't usually quite used to those are, are enabling, enabling that to happen. Uh, other problems of pests on, 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 uh, in agriculture are, are, are spreading in, in ways that they hadn't been able to spread before, and that's causing problems. So, but, but again, to keep it specifically with uh, human health impacts, I mean, I, one of the things I wrote about recently was a survey of uh, uh, over 15,000 physicians and medical workers and professionals that uh, 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 they basically talked about what they're seeing. And um, they, they are seeing dramatic health effects as, as what they're attributing directly to climate change. And uh, things like saying, well, over, you know, 89% of, of that 15,000 that I mentioned agreed that climate change is occurring. And 65% of them said that uh, it's, it's relevant and having impacts already on patient care. And what's really surprising, there's a lot of other statistics from that report, but I think the most shocking one is that 77% of that 15,000 medical workers said they had already seen an increase in chronic diseases related to air pollution. Uh, So again, increasing temperatures, causing more severe pollution problems, translating directly into human health problems. Other things that I'd written about is an increase of, of intestinal worms because Rising sea levels around uh, coastal river deltas and other coastal areas is leading to a prevalence of flukes that are getting uh, ingested by humans and causing infections and internal organ problems uh, like inflammation and, and, and breakdowns and things like that. So um, those and then other things that I've mentioned uh, is, is um, you know, literally deadly bug bites. And again, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier where you know, we're seeing insect uh, infestations that are happening in areas because the temperatures are just a little bit warmer and not killing off so many over the, in the winter. So there's more the next summer and that kind of thing. So it's causing, you know, more diseases, infestations, bug bites, uh, and, and various things like that, 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 again, this stuff just wasn't happening 10 years ago when, when temperatures were even just a little bit different. And, uh, go ahead. Sorry, Kevin. Well, I, I wanted to go into uh, this thing that you wrote about the Navy. because. <laughs> so I'm glad we're on the same page here, Rania. So I wanted to, because obviously our Pentagon has to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest contributors to climate disruption in the world. The biggest. Uh, based on, it is the biggest. Okay, so, and yep. you wrote about this thing with the U.S. Navy and their electromagnetic war games, and I don't need to set it up too much. I'll let you go in and describe what you were detailing. Yeah, and this is a story, it's it's kind of one of these stories that's turning into the gift that keeps on giving as far as a journalist goes, because I've 
I, uh, I'm actually working on two more on it now. And the digger I deep, the kind of more nefarious the story gets. But in short, the overview is that the, the, the Pentagon is uh, doing a massive domestic expansion. And I'm just looking at it right now only specific to the Navy. But the Navy literally already is doing training and wargaming off of just about every single coastal state in the entire country and even a lot of the interior states. And so I live up in Washington state and it's ex they're extremely uh, prevalent up here. They're all over the place. And basically there's a, a battle happening up here where the Navy wants to do electromagnetic warfare training because, you know, all the modern militaries, everything is digital at this point. And so they're trying to war game and prepare uh, being able to fly over areas and knock out, like, Russian or Chinese uh, electronics in their military. So be able to fly over a warship and, like, let out a electromagnetic pulse blast or something and render the whole thing useless. So they want to do that kind of training. But what's nefarious about it is they've already got these training ranges out in the middle of nowhere in the plains of Idaho, for example. But for whatever reason, they decide well, we want to do it out on Western Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, which just so happens to be almost completely national forest and national park. And so their aim is to add a whole bunch of, they call them growler jets. They're these F-18 jets that are the single loudest airplane of any kind ever produced anywhere on the planet and, and, and beef up a number of them flying up to 36 jets, 290 days a year, 12 to 16 uh, hours per day, flying them down as low as 1,200 feet above the ground in a total of 2,900 training exercises annually uh, um, and, and, and basically doing this electromagnetic warfare training. They'd be flying very low over the ground. There'd be 15 mobile radar emitters on the ground, and the jets would be trying to pick those up and jam them and such. And so there's myriad documents available that show that that type of electromagnetic radiation is extremely harmful to human beings, even on a very, very low dose, not even to talk about the levels the Navy intends to use. And then I covered it from the environmental perspective where, you know, this is, you know, you're talking about them doing this in an area where there's, according to the Audubon Society, a billion birds annually use it as a migratory pathway. Uh, and the Navy wants to move ahead for this, and the Forest Service is trying to rubber stamp it, despite the fact that there's numerous reports, scientific studies out, and, and the most prestigious journals available that show that the bionavigational abilities of, of these birds will be directly severely impacted by what the Navy intends to do. There's at least four endangered species there, and, and, and uh, other wildlife would be severely Im impacted, particularly uh, amphibians and coastal wildlife. But even the Navy itself, I, I cite some of their reports that show a, a naval report, an Air Force report, and a report from NASA that show very, very clear negative human health effects. And even the Navy itself admitted, yeah, well, if, if a human stood right next to one of these mobile emitters that are going to be on the ground for this warfare training, in 15 minutes, your eyeballs would melt. But they're, they're still somehow okay with saying there's no, quote, significant impact on humans or wildlife by these types of, of trainings. And, and, you know, people think, well, I don't live in Washington State. That's not such a big problem. Well, um, actually, it is a big problem because they're already testing weapons all over the United States. Uh, it's well documented that they've done things like release chemical and biological warfare in areas where they knew civilians would be hit. 
They've done it in, on farm areas. So it, this is not a new thing. I'm just trying to get people up to speed on what exactly they're trying to do right now because there's big battles happening in this state, in California, in Oregon, and um, e even down in Florida and other states where people are trying to fight this because they're very, very concerned by what they're seeing in this dramatic uptick in the naval operations. Um, so I, uh, I wanted to ask you about, um, you wrote about something which is interesting, which we don't really hear about or people don't really talk about in connection to climate change. It's usually like a very, um, a very like a sanitized story. Or it's usually like a very uh, antiseptic story that we hear, but you actually like write about the depression that comes along um, with reporting on this. And then you talk about, or you quote uh, scientists and how it affects their own like um, sanity and mental health and, and their own like feelings and happiness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. I, I wrote a piece on this uh, just a, came out a couple of weeks ago and um, I, because it was really born of my own struggles with depression and the feelings that came up of, you know, everything we've just talked about. It's really, really challenging information to take in and to really think about, you know, if we talk about abrupt climate change and other articles I've written have even talked about the possibility of, of human extinction, uh, which more and more people in the scientific community are starting to acknowledge this is a very real possibility. Uh, and, and not in the not so we're not talking about 500 years down the road. We're talking about some folks are even talking about possibly within a couple of decades. And, and anyway, all the feelings that come up from taking in this type of information. And so I I actually found this blog um, where a fellow named Joe Duggan, who's a science communicator, uh, had started a blog called Is This How You Feel? And basically wrote letters, asked, asked leading climate scientists to send him letters about how they feel about what they're, what they're uh, studying and, and, and finding out. And so I kind of categorized it into different feelings, uh, frustration, hope, concern, anger, and uh, pretty, pretty amazing stuff that I found. I mean, for example, there was um, one fellow that I quoted at length. His name's uh, Professor Bradshaw, who's a director of ecological modeling at University of Adelaide. And um, he, he said, look, I, as a biologist, I see irrefutable evidence every day that human-driven climate disruption will turn out to be one of the main drivers of the Anthropocene mass extinction event now underway. See, I said, a case in point of what I was mentioning earlier, but um, you know, he he goes on and just kind of vents his fury towards uh, the people that he feels are responsible. I mean, I'll quote a, a couple of short paragraphs where he says, my frustration with these greedy, lying bastards, i.e. the people, you know, in the governments and the industry causing this is personal. Human caused climate disruption is not a belief. It is one of the best studied phenomena on Earth. Even a half wit can understand this. As far as as any father would, any th anyone threatening my family will be on the receiving end of my ire and vengeance. This anger is the manifestation of my deep love for my daughter and the sadness I feel in my core about how others are treating her future. And so he literally is is is, is overtly threatening these people. And and then there's others that really they talk about their sadness and their frustration and their worry and it's. It was. I thought it was just really helpful to kind of publish this, and actually, the response I got from that article was really, really overwhelming. I mean, I got a lot of really, really positive emails, and a lot of people kind of wanting to use me as a bit of a sounding board for their own feelings about all this stuff. So, 
I, I guess to my last thing I'll ask you and Ron, you may have something else before we conclude the interview. My last question for you is just to address if you have any thoughts on it, it feels like at least with the political class, uh, whether it's because of money or not, I really don't know. I'm not sure what the motivations are, but I just know when I view politics today and I listen to people who are in positions of power, it seems like they've completely forsaken science. Well, most of them have because, you know, again, we we all know that our, this is not a democracy. This is a, you know, America is a business. It's nothing about serving people or anything like that. And that the prime drivers behind our government are corporate power. And some of the biggest of those are the fossil fuel industry companies. And so um, without a doubt, we see uh, science being blasphemed. Uh, you know, the Republican-led House and Senate at this point. Uh, and, and politics always consistently going ever further to the right in this country. And that means, you know, literally to, to go up and face climate disruption head on and do what needs to be done means complete system change. And so that's why we have this entrenched political financial system that is hell-bent on allowing that change. And so that's why things like science and reality that just so happen to get in their way, they're going to blaspheme it and and go, you know, sink down to the level of personal attacks and getting racist and discriminatory and things like this, kind of adopt the Fox News model, but on a broader political level. And that's how, you know, that's, that's, that's what we're up against now. And that's, that's what they're resorting to, because it's basically all they have. Jeez. Uh, if only climate change was like an ISIS of, of sorts. Um, could present it could, could like present itself as such. Maybe then you know there'd be more. <laughs> there'd That's be more right. Any PMR. chance there will be beheadings? Did, yeah. Will climate disruption behead anybody? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> Although, okay, not to like hate on Saudi Arabia too much, but as you know, the place we think of when we think of oil and gas. Um, it is kind of funny how ISIS and climate change, I mean, all these things seem to emanate. Anyways, I'm taking this too far. Um, but I would like to end, <laughs> I, I guess here's a good question I want to ask, because I mean, this is just such a, and, then, and I don't want you to just like make things up, obviously, to make everyone feel better. But you, you talked a little bit about, you know, you said you mentioned there are, are things that are being done. Um, so just to end on like a bit of a less negative note, um, mm-hmm. are there things to be hopeful for? Um, in terms of like activism around trying to prevent um, some of these things, and I, I guess I, I mean more in terms of like in this country at least. You know, I, I personally have found some respite from the depression and all this bad news by just simply, you know, I think all solutions are going to start on a local level, and you know, really um, do my best to kind of let go of the bigger picture result. I can't really control it anyway, but just what am I doing personally? to lower my carbon footprint? What am I doing to try to educate more people about what's happening so they can ideally do the same? And, you know, and I think each one of us can, in our own personal way, start doing stuff right now immediately on a daily basis to, uh, at the very least, uh, stop adding to the problem. And and I think that, you know, that because I think that all of us can find solace in taking some kind of action towards, well, we don't know what's going to happen, um, and but there's, and, and I think it's in that uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen because we've never been here before as a species uh, means we're morally obliged to do everything we can. Um, you know, and I have no idea what's going to happen. Nobody really knows for sure what's going to happen. So therefore, it really leaves open the possibility of 
we have to do everything that we can um, and exploit that uncertainty to our advantage, you know, and, and at the risk of getting too philosophical. But I, I think that that kind of translates into, you know, direct immediate actions. Why are you driving when you can ride a bike? Are you at the very least, are you not carpooling? You know, what else are you doing to lower your footprint? And there's, there's millions of things all of us can do on a daily basis if we just sit down and think about it for five minutes. And Dara, I want to ask you one more thing that I just I just realized um, is y- you've gone from I mean pretty you know not not necessarily overnight but pretty quickly I mean you went from basically be you know reporting on war and from war zones to now focusing almost exclusively on climate change so what what drove that that um, that trans or I guess what drove that change in focus. It was a combo of being completely burnt out on war after covering it for so long. And then also just for a long time, I mean, even before I started my war reporting, just watching what was happening to the planet and being having a growing concern about it. And then, of course, at this point, it's so glaringly uh, important that I just felt like, well, this is what needs to be covered. But I think in the future, my, re- my reporting is going to kind of combine more of the same. And it's kind of starting to with this Navy stuff, because as as Kevin mentioned, you know, with the military being the the U.S. military being the single largest polluter on the planet, and then war as 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 kind of an amplifier of of climate disruption, and a cause of as well as a result of, and so all, I mean, all of these things are kind of more and more becoming the same topic. So I think in the future I'm going to start kind of coming back into covering both because I think they're kind of devilish, devilishly intertwined at this point and kind of. You know, brings us all back around to why you know, look, we've we've got to be against this mil- growing militarism also because it's kind of a byproduct of the system that's consuming the planet. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, um, and we will be following your work <laughs> closely. All right. Well, thank you guys. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and uh, maybe next time I'll, I'll have had that article come out, we can talk a little bit more solutions and it won't be quite as intense. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. So the first story we wanted to talk about uh, relates to the interview with Dar, sort of, and I uh, wanted to highlight uh, this actually was reported back on Saturday, but I went most of the week without realizing that apparently our FBI is contacting, knocking on doors, calling, texting, family members of anti-oil uh, or uh, oil sands activists. Uh, so people who have been involved in doing blockading of shipments of equipment north to Canada's oil sands have uh, been targeted by the FBI as of recently, according to their lawyer, who says in Washington state, uh, in Oregon and Idaho, uh, people have been visited. There's one person who was visited at work. Uh, they're interested around activism relating to the tar sands and the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and they basically say this. It's you know They're trying to sound innocent, Rania. We're not doing criminal investigations. You're not accused of any crime. We're just trying to learn more about the movement. <laughs> Entirely innocent. You know, I mean, if you judge the history of the FBI, 
They just want to affect uh, and, and fight crime. It has nothing to do with squashing dissent. Uh, so, anyways, seriously, um, uh, people are being called. I work with the FBI. Could you give me a call back? Um, and it's very ominous, and it's it's not clear what their purpose is. Uh, there is a group called uh, Deep Green Resistance um, that has openly uh, advocated or, or suggested that there should be uh, sabotage and uh, dismantling of planet-harming infrastructure in the past, um, and there are groups that actually aren't very friendly or uh, supportive of of deep green resistance for reasons I won't get into at this time. But uh, there's a suspicion that maybe the FBI is sowing division between these groups by trying to come to these tar sands activists and ask for information about deep green resistance and that maybe they want them to snitch on other radical environmentalists and, and, and start some kind of conflict within the environmental movement that could affect uh, the ability to challenge oil tar sands. So anyways, uh, that's that's what's going on, and it's it's fairly significant because, as we talked about climate disruption, it's important that people continue to engage in activism to fight this, and uh, so that, uh, that's basically what needs to be said about this story. Uh, well, another group of people that the FBI likes to target, um, Muslims, appear to be under attack in the United States um, in a very real way. Uh, so I'm sure everybody who's listening has heard about the Chapel Hill shooting at this point. Um, I assume you have, Kevin. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, so if you haven't, um, a few days ago, uh, three people, students um, at uh, UN's at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, were shot to death in their home um, by one of their neighbors, uh, and um, uh, the three of them—they were all Muslim. Um, one of the or the so their names were uh, one of them was Dia Shadi Barakat. He was twenty three. Um, his wife Yasur Abu Salha, who was twenty one, and her sister Razan Abu Salha, who was nineteen. Um, Dia and Yusor had just gotten married. They'd been married for like a half a year, um, and they were shot and killed by a neighbor. Who I mean, this is the, so the strange thing about this is um, the way it's been handled by authorities. Um, their neighbor Craig Hicks, or I'm sorry, Craig Stephen Hicks, uh, apparently turned himself in to police after he did this. Apparently, he shot them in the head. But we the, and um, and he told police it was over a parking dispute. Um, and so after, first of all, I mean, the family. This happened like on the eve. In, I think this happened Tuesday evening. Um, like early evening and after it happened, um, hours had gone by, the family was outside and the police still hadn't told the family whether they were like who was dead and whether they had died or not. Um, and so there's like, there's these videos, um, that were, you know, that are on various media sites showing, and it was, it's really heartbreaking. Just like the father, uh, one of, of Dia being like, is my son dead or not? It's been hours. Like, tell me if he's alive or not. Um, so it's like from the beginning, it was just the way the whole authorities handled it was very bizarre and strange and, um, was not helpful, uh, and seemed to be withholding information from the family. And on top of that, like it's been days and they still haven't even released how, 
Like, you know, Kevin, after someone's murdered, usually, like, police are pretty quick to be like, this is how it happened, like, after they figure it out. Like, this person went into their, you know, went into their home. Here's, you know, here's where everybody was shot. Here's how they did it. You know what I mean? None of that information has been released yet. So I find that very bizarre, too. Like, I, But either way, what we do know is that this neighbor who apparently was very, very aggressive and had kind of neighbors were scared of him for a while had been harassing these people. Um, and they had told their families that, um, especially one of them, Usor had told her family that, um, that this guy scared her and that he, she believed he did not like them because of the way they looked. Um, and she wears a hijab and so does her sister. So like they they physically look like, you know, they look like Muslims. Um, and so, and so, yeah, she felt that he disliked them for that. And then after, you know, and then also the shooter, his Facebook profile, like everybody, you know, um, everybody, pretty much everybody who's been watching the story has seen that um, he is like militantly anti-theist, which by the way, I didn't know was a word. Um, it's like an atheist who hate, like who is not just, it's like not just being an atheist and not believing in God, but it's. It goes further than that. It's like anti-theist, I guess, means that you are hostile towards religious people or towards religion in general. Um, But yeah, he's like militantly so, you know, um, big fan of like, you know, the Richard Dawkins, um, Sam Harris, Bill Maher types and whatnot. So um, so given all of this information, I mean, given the fact that he had harassed them, um, specifically seemed to have been targeting them, he'd come to their house before with his firearm to his side. like uh, telling you know like yeah, telling them that they were being too loud or that they you know they needed to start park stop parking in his parking spot or something um you know people people were assuming or people were suspecting that it was a hate crime but police like immediately after speaking to this guy um came out and said that this was over a parking dispute um the chapel hill police he said this is over a parking dispute that's what are you know that's we have um no reason to believe it had anything to do with anything else um which is so strange to just like immediately um you know rule out it could have been a hate crime especially given the climate of islamophobia and hatred towards arabs that's like been building up i mean it's always around but it's really been building up over the past couple months after the paris attacks and with american sniper um, and isis and with isis i mean it's just you know with isis it's like it's um you know it's like it's hard to 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 even like i don't know it's just crazy i mean the whole and the family keeps saying i mean the family this morning um one of the sisters of a sister an older sister of the two who were killed uh was on morning joe and she basically said that it's like insulting um that people are suggesting that this was over a parking dispute. And let me just read you this. I mean, this was so crazy. The day, like, literally, not even 24 hours, the next morning or the next afternoon after this happened, the wife of this man, um, Karen Hicks, held a press conference with her lawyers. And this is what her lawyer said at the press conference. It is a simple matter. It has nothing to do with the religious face of the victims. It it has nothing to do with terrorism. It has nothing to do with anything but the mundane issue of this man being frustrated day in and day out of not being able to park where he wanted to park. And unfortunately, these victims were there at the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. First of all, like, they were the wrong, I mean, this was in their home. It's, you can't say people were at the wrong place at the wrong time in their home. Um, just the idea this was over a mundane parking dispute. I mean, and like, if you watch that, it's really just like shocking. I mean, watching that press conference, because they also say 
not only was it like a mundane issue of a parking dispute, he mentions the lawyer says, oh, um, he says about uh, the he mentions the homeowners association. He's like he went to the homeowners association repeatedly and they refused to help him. Like as if like this guy was like right rightfully disgruntled. Like had a reason to be upset. Um, and then like had a reason to be a vigilante. Yeah. Right. And then like also he mentioned that um, that with the parking. Um, or not with the parking, he mentioned, oh, there, you know, and this this is just, like, it highlights that we need, that people with mental health need to be able to access mental health services. And then one of the reporters was like, uh, okay, are you saying that he has a history of mental illness? And the, the, the lawyer's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Like, it's just like, it, I mean, it was just so bizarre. And then the media sort of went with it, too. And it was, you know, first of all, well, back to the, the media, the way this was happening, I mean, this happened in the evening. Um, but the media, the U.S. media, was completely derelict in reporting on it. I mean, it was like the British, it, it, the British, me, the British media was reporting on this before the mainstream U.S. outlets did. Um, and it, I mean, it was just really shocking. I mean, you have three people who were shot, like who were executed in their home by a neighbor. Um, uh, I, I mean, just the whole thing. I mean, and of course, like. People, you know, no one, I, I mean, if this was the other way around, if this had been, of course, and I know this is so cliche to say, and it's so, t- like, it's like almost like you shouldn't have to say it, but if this had been a Muslim person who shot to death three, like, atheists or whatever, I mean, you can, you, you can bet that this would not be being portrayed or framed as a parking dispute. Um, we would be talking about ideologies and we would be talking about terrorism. Um, and so it's just really, like, an example of the double standard in a really, um, you know, tragic way. Uh, and then one more thing to mention is the fact that the president of the United States has yet to even offer his condolences. He has, he has said nothing about this. Absolutely nothing. The FBI is apparently has apparently opened an inquiry into the killing, but it's like, a, I mean, it's not, um, it's a, it's not like a, a deep probe or anything. It's not like a full investigation. It's just like, um, apparently you know just like a probe I don't, i'm not even sure what it is it's just an inquiry that's it um but yeah it's just really sad um it's all really really sad and all also like really irritating to watch people try and write this off like as if the societal hatred towards um, muslim and arab americans played no part and I mean, maybe this man was angry, right? Like maybe he was angry and maybe he was like about to snap, but the, I mean, he, he decided to shoot and kill his Muslim, his Arab Muslim neighbors, you know? Yeah. Or, I mean, the thing is it's, it's it, these binaries that are always created by our media that it either has to be a parking dispute or it's a hate crime. But what if it was a hate crime involving a parking dispute that like, right, right. you know, the reason he's reacting this way to this parking violation against him. You know, he feels he's slighted and oppressed. His white atheist self is being oppressed. Um, And, you know, maybe he decided that he was going to murder these people because of his hatred for them. So there's that. And then also, it's interesting that if we're going to put this, I'm putting air quotes around parking dispute, if we're going to call these parking disputes, that, like, there has been previous instances where there have been these parking disputes um in fact in in last year there was an artist who had fled iraq who was uh shot to death in a home depot parking lot um he was just there shopping um and and was basically killed because of who he was um and that was looked at as a as a hate crime um there 
uh, was an instance in um, back in 2009 where um, you had a, a landscaper with the hatred of Islam who tried to run over two Muslim women at a suburban gas station, um, threatened to kill them because of their religion. So uh, it's interesting because, like, if you go look, there are these examples of people targeting. So it shouldn't be odd for the media to try to grasp that in a parking lot when they're arguing over whatever they're arguing over that this is this involves bigotry. Yeah, and you know, I think that um, when it comes to the way that you know, and the media has changed its tone a little bit, um, and I think it's because. Over the past couple of days, I mean, you know, there's been, a, they've, they've really humanized these victims um, in a way that they don't typically do for Muslims because these were like really stand up individuals um, who, um, like Dia, had been raising money to go to Turkey um, to give free dental services to Syrian refugees. Um, like they were really involved in the community. They were, you know, they were really involved in, um, and, um, in, uh, in, like, helping the homeless, like, you know, like, feeding the homeless, and, like, uh, I mean, they were really, you know, they were really, like, they were, like, they were good Muslims, you know what I mean? Like, they're, like, I mean, literally, these are, like, picture-perfect, not just Muslims in general, these are, like, picture-perfect type Americans who, you know, are offering their services to help the needy, um, both abroad and at home. And so, like, and so, like, it's, the you know, and it doesn't matter, like, who's killed, it's, it's wrong regardless, but it just kind of adds the extra, like, when people are humanized like this, as they should be, it adds this extra, like, um, this extra sort of tragedy um, around it. And so I think because of that, the media has changed its tone a little bit, especially also, like, a lot of the family members have been going on, you know, have gone on news outlets and basically said, like, you know, this is, this was a hate, they did, like, this was a hate crime. Um, they, you know, and you can't tell the, the grieving family members, like, you're not going to be like, no, but what about Muslims? You know, you're not, I don't know. It's just the, the treatment has been a little bit different. Like, it's been, that's been good, but I also think the media was a little slow to come to this conclusion uh, because of the fact that the media has been complicit in spreading hatred towards Arabs and Muslims. Um, I mean, it's like nonstop. It's been really nonstop, endless incitement um, in the past couple months between the, between the Paris attacks and all the nonstop coverage of ISIS. And so um, I really do think that there needs to be a broader reflection here of not just this guy was like a lone wolf. Okay, now, now it's like, okay, maybe he was a bigot. But he was still a lone wolf. I think we need to start to look at this as, like, what was society's role? Like, what was American culture's role um, in maybe not pushing him to shoot people, but in, you know, in the fact that he targeted these people particularly? And then also, like, I want to know at what point are we going to start talking about the fact that white men, like— continuously kill people in large numbers in this country. And I mean, I, and I genuinely mean that I don't mean that in like a sarcastic way or in a, in a, I'm not trying to be witty here. I genuinely need that. I mean, the overwhelming majority of mass shootings are committed by white men. Um, and I, I just, I, I, you know, like, I don't understand why we don't talk about this. Like there's something really like, there's something wrong there that needs to be dealt with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's also like, I noticed there was a, facebook page set up in his honor oh yeah and if this had happened to let's say if this was happening to anybody on uh that was politically aligned with us in any way uh we would be hearing about it 24 7 about how it was our responsibility and obligation to contemn to condemn that shit right now without any hesitation whatsoever and i i just i can't fathom how 
people who are involved in that page and also like it, it just seems so toxic like i'm all for free speech and freedom of expression but it just seems so odd that 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 such a a, a murderer you know facebook allows a page for a murderer to exist on it's sad. I mean, if this was a page for like for for the Boston bombers or something, I mean, the FBI would be after every single person posting on it or liking it. Um, but I will say this as well, um, and this is my, the last point I want to bring up is that you know usually when it comes to hate crimes, we're used to the perpetrators being like Tea Party types who you know are very very right wing and conservative and like hate the gays, you know, and hate you know. They're very, you know, very hateful individuals where you're like the very like openly almost white supremacist type people. Right. Um, but in this case, this individual, I mean, if you look at his Facebook page, he like hates all religions. Like he, cause he, I mean, he does, he seems to, you know, he seemed his Facebook page, which, which suggests that he hates all religions equally, but he also talks about how he supports same sex marriage. Right. He talks about, he supports equality. Um, I'm not saying like, he was a progressive by any means, but he seemed like he was kind of a liberal in that sense. And so um, I think that this sort of reflects the fact that anti-Muslim hatred um, isn't, it's not, it never was isolated to the right, but it's increasingly less isolated to the right. Um, And that's disturbing. And I mean, like, you know, well, what, Bill Maher sounded yeah, the call that right. we have to stand up for our liberal values. Right. And that's what I mean is, like, we've got these sort of hate preachers on the liberal end of things, like Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, um, who are, like, inciting against Muslims on a pretty regular basis. And that should, that's dangerous. Like, it really is dangerous. And it also is a part of, like, the attitude that is prevalent among liberals and it, I think it always has been it's just really like come out more recently um, and, and also as as left leaning people uh, you should condemn it as quickly as you would Glenn Beck for inciting people right exactly and it kind of reminds me like of the the, the Charlie Hebdo um, like ideologues uh, and by that, I mean like that, you know, that whole magazine is like, oh, but it's satire. It's equal opportunity hatred. It makes fun of everyone. Right. Um, well, at the same time, um, you know, it, like the, and it's also like professing this like atheist attitude. Um, and I, look, I'm saying this as somebody who is not like I'm an atheist myself. Not that it should matter, but like, you know, just throwing that out there. I'm not like anti atheist here. Um, but at the same time, like, I really do think that this um sort of represents like it's not this isn't all the tea party patriots like we can't we can't blame like you said all it's not all glenn beck like those might be the most insightful um like they they might incite the most like on fox news but it's also happening elsewhere like there's a virulent hatred uh towards muslims and arabs that that is like part of mainstream american culture um and i think that this really represents just how dangerous it's gotten so we have just a few minutes here before we wrap, and I wanted to squeeze in uh, a few stories quickly. I'm just going to roll through these as I uh, wanted to make sure we mentioned them before we finish the show. Uh, so we did the interview with Barah last week, Barah Shaban, and it was very excellent. And I thought as a follow-up, it was important to acknowledge uh, that things 
have uh, progressed to where you've had seven uh, different embassies closed. I think at least seven. Uh, the U.S. embassy closed. Uh, Saudi embassy closed on February 13th. And uh, it's a big uh, development. And you've also got uh, the CIA uh, apparently flailing and uh, with officials uh, speaking anonymously to the Washington Post about how dire they feel it is that these special operations have been curtailed because they no longer have the U.S. embassy as a base for some CIA operations uh, and even U.S. military operations that have been ongoing in Yemen. Um, so I wanted to highlight that. Um, another big thing that happened was that uh, a, a judge uh, ruled in a, a significant lawsuit involving the uh, NSA surveillance that uh, it's totally secret and off limits for us uh, to to look at um, whether our communications are being intercepted um, through uh, it involved the Prism program, which Edward Snowden made uh, uh, disclosures around, and, and we all learned about how things were getting uh, picked up in what was called upstream collection. But the judge looked at it and said, "It's off limits, state secrets. Oh, we don't get to uh, investigate and, and get any evidence and have it out in court and challenge the government and even get to the issue. There may be Fourth Amendment violations to our privacy. It may be unconstitutional, but." National security is the highest priority, said this judge, uh, Jeffrey White. And so uh, the government gets a pass and they get to continue to spy on us all. Hmm. Uh, and the final thing is that uh, this is significant news. Chelsea Manning uh, is going to be able to have hormone therapy in uh, prison. And uh, she is at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, a military facility of course, serving a 35-year sentence, um, has been in prison for you know a, a year or two now, serving time, and uh, the uh, facility is going to have to provide it. It was approved. Now, it's really incredible. The way we learn about how this is happening is apparently a memo where a com the commandant of Fort Leavenworth approved the therapy leaked to the USA Today, and, uh, and that's how we found out. And so, uh, as is probably understandable. The lawyer was furious that uh, medical information about Chelsea Manning is leaking to the press, and Chelsea Manning is in jail for leaking documents that we all were able to use to become better informed. Well, that sounds like a HIPAA violation. <laughs> it, it's rather incredible. And they, one of the things that they've done is they seem to be testing, because this is new ground for the Pentagon to treat trans people as actual human beings. So rather than dehumanizing them, they're now in this position where they uh, would give them treatment they deserve and are owed. And uh, But they want to test it with the public. So they trickle out these details about how they're going to handle Chelsea because she's been fighting for treatment. And uh, one of the earlier things last year was that they might move her to a federal prison because military doesn't treat trans people so she could go to a federal facility maybe and they would give her hormone therapy there uh but but then that her lawyer was furious with that that was not something that had been discussed in any conversations so now we're at this point where um and it's a big deal for the pentagon uh that they would go ahead and allow this um but i don't think 
we should give them too much credit because this is what they should do. At, at minimum, this is what they should do because it is incredible uh, the sort of duress that a person would be under by not getting the, the proper medical treatment they are, are, are needed. She needs this to function as a person. Mm. So, all right. Well, um, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? I think that does close? it. I think that does it for our show. I, we're we're gonna take a break next week, uh, and uh, we'll be back the following week to do another show. And uh, there's a lot of people I've been seeing. People like our Facebook page. I'm I'm really happy that the show page is getting some some traffic, and we're using that to share our episodes and uh, also post articles from some of our guests so it's it's really it, it looks like a nice space that sounds like yeah i agree i agree all right so i guess we will be back in a couple weeks 